Hello and welcome to this fifth episode in the series that I'm doing on the Enneagram in the Unorthodoxy podcast. At the start of the series, I pointed out that one of the things that I really appreciate about the Enneagram is its dynamism. It doesn't just tell us who we are, but in fact tells us how we might grow, especially spiritually, or how, how we might tend to miss out on growth. It's not overly prescriptive either or, or self-assured, which is helpful to bear in mind. In this and the two episodes that follow this one, I want to start to explore the different Enneatypes, types, but with a focus on the dynamics of each Enneatype. type. That is, especially here, I want to give you a sense of how each type relates to what are usually called, called points of integration and disintegration. I'm not going to get into the wings of each Enneatype here because I'll spend one episode dedicated to that subject on its own. While my descriptions of each Enneatype may be incomplete, I want to be able to, at the very least, leave you with a provisional impression of how each type moves within the flow of the Enneagram. In this episode, my focus is on the so-called gut or instinct types. These are the nines, eights, and ones. The so-called instinct or body triad at the top of the Enneagram. All of these types have some or other connection with indolence or spiritual laziness. This, by the way, does not mean that the rest of us are exempt from spiritual laziness, but rather that spiritual laziness just happens to be especially at issue for the gut or instinct types. This is really uh, an interesting thing to notice because this indolence or inertia is connected with the emotion of anger. Anger is a boundary-creating and boundary-enforcing emotion, and indolence suggests that the way this boundary might be set up is is basically through a kind of self-forgetting. But this will play out differently for nines, eights, and ones. Eights, for instance, may look like all they do is set up boundaries, but what's really going on a lot of the time is that the boundaries are being tested by eights because they're not really properly understood. The boundaries are often for eights being set up in the wrong place. Eights express their anger by actually showing you that they're angry, although surprisingly, eights are often unaware that what they're expressing looks like anger to most of us. They they forget their anger But it's actually at the core of their energy. It comes out as a really powerful kind of assertiveness, a really strong sense of rightness. Even when they're not trying to sound assertive, eights tend to sound assertive. Then nines, well, nines tend toward inertia because they forget their anger. And so they also forget their own edges. Nines express anger usually through passive-aggressive gestures like being late or tardy or excessively indecisive or even by literally falling asleep. Um, and, and by doing this, they pass on tricky decisions to everyone around them. Nines do these things because they don't even know they're angry. They'd probably be seriously surprised if you told them that you think they're angry. When nines do get visibly angry, though, well, it makes even the anger of eights seem calm by a comparison. Even though nines forget their anger, anger remains a kind of latent energy that gives nines their sense of solidity. One of my nine friends uh, pointed out to me that anger is really the thing that drives him. It's what gives, gives him his sense of purpose which seems seriously counterintuitive given how steady and calm nines tend to be. 
And then ones. Well, ones express their anger or instinct most commonly through a kind of irritable resentment, or at least in its more subtle form, by means of some kind of assertion of rulemaking. Anger is evident as a solid sense of self-righteousness or self-criticism, and it may not even look like anger or resentment at all. It just It's just that's how it gets manifested in rulemaking. Remember that the anger of ones is pretty much unacceptable, and they generally don't want to be anything other than perfect. So that anger gets translated into perfectionism or moralism, and that then gets translated into an outlook on life that insists that everything, especially themselves, should be way better than it is or they are. With this background information uh, around the gut types in mind, let's get to some of the details of each type, starting with nines. Nines are called the peacemakers because of this profound sense of stability that they exude. In in fact, nines need to be at peace. This is their, their real core need. Nines are generally able to manage or avoid conflicts amazingly well. They work towards creating both inner and outer harmony in whatever way they can. Their perspective is that of the eternal optimist. They're always looking on the bright side of life, to quote Monty Python, although in a bit of an unfocused way. They struggle to know what's important. Things are good, but when hard-pressed, nines aren't always exactly sure why or in what way. The number nine is also right at the top or the crown of the Enneagram figure, which points to the fact that nines are often capable of displaying the characteristics of pretty much any other type on the Enneagram. But they do this in a very nine-ish sort of way. Uh, they can be as strong as eights, as adventurous as sevens, as loyal as sixes, as intellectual as fives, as creative as fours, as determined and as compelling as threes, as generous-hearted as twos, and as idealistic as ones. So nines are very easily mistyped especially by themselves. And this is mostly because of their own sense of a kind of fuzzy or fluid identity. Their sense of identity is a little bit difficult for them to pinpoint. Nines often struggle to assert their own identities over and against others, which means that they are both profoundly gifted mediators and mentors, and also somehow quite out of touch with their own perspectives. Nines see through everyone else's eyes, but they're not always able to see through their own eyes. And this gives nines a, a natural zen-like detached quality. They seem enlightened even if they aren't. They come off as sage-like sometimes, even if they're not really sages. So this is, by the way, one of the challenges of the nine types. They need to work against a kind of premature sense of having attained spiritual enlightenment because that sense probably comes to them more easily than it does to any other type. I've heard some Enneagram teachers say that nines are the most naturally spiritual type, but I think this is misleading. Nines certainly seem like the most naturally spiritual type, but that's exactly the trap, to seem spiritual without actually having a sense of any real spiritual connection. And one of the chief ways of attaining spiritual connection is um, to embrace and transcend what Enneagram teachers refer to as the soul child. 
Actually, the embracing and transcending of the soul child is vital for every single Enneatype, so I think an explanation will help. By the way, I know how weird some of the language here is. The soul child, I mean, that's that's this really esoteric uh, way of speaking, but the gist of its meaning can be interpreted in pretty straightforward psychological terms as that part of ourselves that we most easily repress or deny. The soul child of each number is found at what most people understand as the point of integration or consolation of each number, which some Enneagram teachers call the heart point. I've already mentioned the idea that each Enneatype has a point of integration and a point of disintegration, but that idea needs a major caveat because our intuitive understanding of what integration and disintegration may mean uh, may be a little off. To explain this, let's look at the Enneatype 9 as an example. Nines, for instance, have the number 3 as their point of integration or heart point. If you're familiar with the way that each Enneatype connects with the others th through the Enneagram figure, which I, I described briefly in the first episode in the series, this is going to make more sense. Anyway, since nines have three as their point of integration or consolation, this may be mistaken to imply that nines move towards growth when they're able to display the autonomy and self-possession and conviction of the mature three namely the best of three-ishness. And this is true in a way, but it's only part of the truth. The, the reason point three is named as the integration point or growth point of nines is because the number three refers firstly to some immature or repressed aspect of the nine, and only then describes what the nine would be aiming for. In other words, point three refers to the thing that needs to be embraced first, before it can be included and transcended. After all, we cannot grow without first figuring out what it is that we need to work on. So that's really what the soul child of each type represents. It represents a part of us that was arrested in its development when we were very young. The soul child is that part of us that was not supported when we were kids. It, it's a bit like the shadow side of ourselves. Um, if we're using Jungian terms. The soul child, in other words, is our unconscious, and it's usually most evident in the ways that we procrastinate. It's the thing, in a way, that we're most likely to put off doing. But here's where it gets really weird. The soul child of each type is also somehow closer to our true selves, or to God, or essence, or being, than the rest of our personality structure. This is partly why integrating means integrating our soul child. This means that we need to make our soul child conscious. We need to bring it into consciousness, out of unconsciousness, before growth can happen. This can be a really scary experience. In fact, it's often really unsettling when our soul child shows up because it's really an immature part of ourselves. So that's the caveat that I really want to make here. At that point of integration often feels at first like it is our point of disintegration. It's only possible to reach some form of integration once we've gone through disintegration. I know that's pretty counterintuitive, but that's really vital. Fives like me, for instance, will know that when that little repressed, enraged eight child shows up, that soul child, it's really not pleasant and it feels awkward and 
pretty much childish, but that same apparently negative energy when befriended is the exact mechanism by which we get into touch with reality. The immense strength of the mature aspects of our heart point or soul child is what we need to get grounded again into essence or reality. The soul child of a nine is a rather deceitful and attention-desiring little three. Nines in, in an immature state reflect this in that they've been known to become pathological liars as a way to try and avoid conflict. They'd rather overeat or undereat to repress their anger, or even, when things are particularly tense, get into substances uh, or drugs that dull their sense of loneliness and anxiety. The point three soul child of the nine shows us that underneath the nine's self-abnegation is a real desire to shine, to be noticed, to not be overlooked. There's even a bit of ruthlessness there that needs to be owned up to. The three-ish soul child of the nine, like every soul child, needs to be loved, not shunned. It speaks the truth, even if it is not the whole truth. The deceitfulness and the exhibitionism of the nine soul child reveals a latent desire to embrace personhood and identity. Deception and exhibitionism are not really a problem per se, but rather a flawed attempt to solve the real problem, which is the belief that conflict cannot thrive when there is no assertion of self. So if you are a nine, maybe there are a few things you can keep in mind. The first is that love, which is the holy idea of the nine, love doesn't depend on the absence of conflict. In fact, real love includes conflict, and the avoidance of conflict does not give rise to real peace, but to a false sense of peace. And so if you are a nine, it's absolutely more than okay to have your own opinion. It's okay to have your own preferences too, to to assert what you like and what you don't like. It may be hard to believe this, but your independence from the world will not alienate you from the world. In fact, it'll ensure a deeper connection to it. Usually nines need to learn to get in touch with their bodies. It's a wonderful thing to to be embodied after all, and it's a wonderful thing to look after your body. But part of being embodied means respecting your body. Eat well, not too much, not too little, and maybe get some exercise. And maybe tell people every now and then what you would like to do. It's actually often really nice for those people who make, the, who tend to make the decisions to have a break from making those decisions. If the number three is the soul child and growth point of nines, it means that six is its point of, uh, the nines point of disintegration or stress. This means more or less that nines fairly naturally step into the fantasy space of sixes, meaning that their fear of loss and separation can reduce them to worry warts, always forecasting worst case scenarios and withdrawing from the world uh, even more often as a result. But this often may come out as a kind of anxiety that is not entirely aware of itself. So the, the fantasies of nines tend to be more detached than those of sixes. They'll even reverse on themselves and show up as positive imaginings about the world and family and life, etc. The nines fantasies may be emotional fantasies like those of twos and fours or intellectual fantasies like those of fives or sevens. But again, Nines need to step back into their bodies to be present and then to show up. 
Nineishness is amazing at its fullest because it is loving and accommodating in the very, very best way. So that is a very brief overview of nines. Now on to Enneotype 8s. Okay, so while nines are out of touch with their instinct, eights tend to overexpress instinct even while they are a little out of touch with it. They have a need to be strong. The immature eight is pure id, instinct personified. Nines exhibit ego indolence as their chief vice, but eights exhibit ego revenge, or also called lust. Eights aren't necessarily lustful in the sexual sense, although they can be, but usually more in the sense we mean when we speak of a lust for life. Eights tend to overdo it, whatever it happens to be. Eights often live pretty easily by the ancient biblical injunction of an eye for an eye and for balancing the scales of justice. They fear being controlled and they desire to protect themselves. They'll give orders really easily, but they will take orders with great difficulty. Eights come across as being really clear on things, and this clarity is already an indication of the holy idea of the eight, which is holy truth. The usual dualistic mindset of eights, then, is actually capable of giving way to a particularly profound kind of non-dual thinking, a perception that really sees behind the multiplicity of things into pure oneness. The aggression of eights, then, can also give way to a really deep sense of innocence. It's that thing in eights that wants to fight for the underdog. And it's really, it's just an amazing thing. Of course, eights are typed as being confrontational, instinctive, authoritative, and challenging. They almost certainly have a kind of automatic rebellion mode pre-programmed, which is why eights are sometimes thought of as being the bad boys and girls of the Enneagram. And eights are profoundly energized. Eights can take up a lot of space. And it's really remarkable because of their need to be strong. Eights are generally in the business of hiding weakness and hiding vulnerability. They easily hide their vulnerability from others, of course, but they also do this from themselves. And this is where the soul child of eights comes in. The soul child of eights is a pretty demanding and clingy little two soul child. It's a, it's a very lonely little soul child who wants to get as close as possible to others while still exhibiting the rather domineering aspects of the type eight. This soul child didn't get enough support when the eight was younger. Its more loving qualities were in some sense rejected. The soul child, as a result, is pretty resentful. So if you are an eight, you probably need to know that that little kid needs to be nurtured and supported, no matter how much you do not like that. Uh, Get used to it if you are an eight. This is exactly what you're fighting for the underdog is trying to tell you. The underdog isn't someone else. It's that little soul child of yours. This means that eights need more than any other enneotype to learn to let others take the lead occasionally, not to dominate, not to see vulnerability as weakness. Eights may not like being dependent on others, but here's the news. We all depend on others. To be alive is to be dependent on the world, on our families, on farmers and supermarkets who make sure that we get food, etc. So be careful of overvaluing power. Maybe power will only be made perfect in weakness. 
In fact, this is obviously going to be a major growth point for AIDS to know that vulnerability is stronger than strength. Actually, Chesterton has this beautiful passage about this in his book Orthodoxy. He writes, The swiftest things are the softest things. A bird is active because a bird is soft. A stone is helpless because a stone is hard. The stone must by its own nature go downwards because hardness is weakness. The bird can of its nature go upwards because fragility is force. And then Chesterton writes this beautiful line. I love it. Angels can fly because they can take themselves lightly. Oddly enough, while eight integrate towards the vulnerable two, they disintegrate to five, which means that they take on the five-ish trend towards being overly self-reliant and fearful. As in the journey towards integration, eights need to learn to trust that dependence is not only a cri- not a crime, but it is both unavoidable and necessary. For growth, Eights can take small steps to learn to lean on others. They can actually learn a lot from nines in this respect. They can defer their decisions from time to time. But I think this is going to be uh, something for each eight type to figure out in terms of their own experience and their own needs for, for growth. And that brings me, last but not least, to ones, the type ones. Let's talk about the soul child of ones first. This happens to be at point seven on the Enneagram. Ones are known for their moralistic, righteous, and upstanding stance. But this is in many ways a defense mechanism against their little gluttonous, pleasure-seeking seven soul child, which really wants nothing more than to have a good time. The soul child of ones doesn't care about doing the right thing, and it couldn't be bothered with perfection. Its concern is is making sure that it gets enough playtime and enough time at at a party sampling all the chocolates and cookies and and any other goodies that are offered there. I think St. Augustine's famous line, Lord make me chaste, but not yet, is a perfect example of this, given that Augustine was a one. Augustine wanted to be good, of course, but he really also enjoyed his life of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, although without the drugs and rock and roll. I mentioned previously that a lot of important cultural boundaries have been set up by immature ones, and certainly a particular reading of Augustine, especially through another type one, namely John Calvin. Calvin would have hated my take expressed in the second episode in the series on the fall as being a mixed blessing rather than being an outright abomination. Ones, as I said, will tend to struggle with non-dual thinking. And for this reason, their natural gift to dive into more heady matters tends to be, in some ways, a little unintellectual. It's, It's very driven by their gut rather than, in a way, by their heads. The the stereotypical evangelical preacher who gets caught with his pants down will tend to fit into this category of non-integrated ones. Instead of befriending and supporting that soul child, the soul child of the one is repressed. Ironically, the seven soul child of the one can also fairly easily set the agenda, meaning that the one may start to defend that soul child's gluttony as being somehow part of its rightness and moralism. This is obviously falling off on the horse the other side. Ones pick on the so-called sins of others mostly as a defense mechanism against their own immoral, in a sense, seven soul child. 
And ones do tend to think of the line between right and wrong or their definition of it to be obvious and non-negotiable. This is particularly tough because it means that ones have to hold themselves to their own high standard, whatever that standard may be, believing it to be an objective rather than a subjective standard. So obviously, by implication, the subjectivity of the standards of ones needs to be brought to light. So as I've said, we all need to learn to love our soul child, and ones need to reconcile themselves more than anyone else with pleasure and enjoyment. Pleasure really isn't evil, it's actually, well, rather pleasurable. And in fact, Augustine's insight that evil is most often manifest when we use what we're supposed to enjoy and enjoy what we're supposed to use is a clear example of a one getting close to knowing the place of pleasure. There are, of course, abuses of pleasure, but the abuses of pleasure often take place when love is absent, when forgiveness and grace are most needed. It's no surprise, then, that Martin Luther, another type one, places such a strong emphasis, even an over-emphasis on grace in his work. One of the most obvious ways for ones to get rid of that voice in their heads that tells them to always do better is just to outright annihilate the superego. This, however, can be disastrous. It's a kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater approach, and it kind of explains why Luther ended up such a bitter old man with some warped ideas. Too much grace, in a way, meant, in the end, a kind of lapse in moral centeredness. The dichotomy between grace and works that we find in a lot of Protestant theology is a very one-ish construction. The dualism or seesaw we find in Paul's writings between being overly moralistic and then overly centered on grace is also a very one-ish thing. Ones disintegrate to fall, meaning that they arrive at a kind of absolute melancholy, mostly in relation to all the ways that they have failed to maintain or inspire perfection. There's a bitterness and a resentment there too, which definitely needs to be dealt with before ones can fully embrace the wonder and the openness symbolized by point seven. Ones need to take steps to grow in the direction of accepting that they are loved before they are perfect. Perfection, in fact, is found in love alone, which is manifest in all kinds of ways. Ones, by the way, also disintegrate to four in the sense that they start to be overly concerned with seeking their own sense of identity. And this is one of the ways to avoid dealing with their own anger and their resentment and their perfectionism. So there you have it. That is it for the gut or instinct types. Already you can see, I hope, that you can't really properly understand each of these types without understanding their connection with the soul child that is at their heart point, as well as obviously with their point of disintegration. Nines are understood best in relation to points three and six. Eights are best understood in relation to points two and five. And then finally, ones are best understood in relation to seven and four on the Enneagram. I will, as I mentioned, get to the wings later, uh, and hopefully that's going to explain a little bit more about the dynamics of the Enneagram. And with that in mind, I will be looking in the next episode at the head types, type 5, 6, and 7. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. Until next time.
Cheers.